1: Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is a delight to close out uh, the show on the week with one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite uh, political and philosophical thinkers, Benjamin Weingarten. He's a deputy editor over at Real Clear Investigations. He's a columnist at Newsweek, and he is the author of really a very important book, American Ingrate, Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democrat." Democratic Party. Benjamin Weingarten, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Thanks for being with us.
2: Seth, the admiration is mutual, <laughs> and thanks so much, as always, for having me.
1: Oh, yeah, you betcha. You betcha. Before we get to the Ilan Omar uh, story of the week, um, I, your piece at uh, Newsweek uh, this past week, A Supreme Disgrace at the High Court, Not only is it really important, but uh, the editor over there and our mutual friend Josh Hammer had a pretty good monologue on it, a very good monologue on it, in his podcast this week. Let's talk just a moment or two about that. This is a story I fear is going to fade away. It really shouldn't. Uh, You wrote at uh, Newsweek, a supreme disgrace at the high court. We are left to deal with the reality that no one has paid a price for doing incalculable damage, you know, from a party, I think. Um, a party that claims that these kinds of institutions and the integrity of these democratic institutions really matter. A sledgehammer was taken to it. Walk us through what you were writing, sir.
2: Yeah, well, from the start, after the initial leak of the then-draft Dobbs opinion, there were any number of curious steps that were taken by a court led by a figure in Chief Justice Roberts, who claims above all else, care about protecting the institution. And as he rightly noted, right after the leak became public, this was an egregious, brazen assault, a betrayal of that institution. And if anything, it's just another sign, another anecdotal example of the fact that the long march through the institutions, one could argue, has is complete. The yeah. Supreme Court was one of the last yeah. relatively insulated institutions, even though, of course, going back to Borking, there have been efforts to degrade it and turn it into another purely political body, and now by Democrats likely to damage it in other ways, up to and including expanding it significantly, and the like. But Chief Justice Roberts said this was an assault, and so the natural next step is, what are you going to do to bring the suspect ultimately to justice, And ensure that something like this never happens again. Mm. And the court was silent for a substantial period of time after the leak until it announced that the marshal, the court's marshal, who, as far as we know, has no significant expertise in executing a massive leak investigation like the one at play here, was tasked with leading that investigation. And we had silence for months, essentially, with the exception of a couple comments, I believe, from Justice Gorsuch uh, that maybe a report would be forthcoming. And then we get this report. And lo and behold, what do we find? And I think this should have been the headline from it. Not only did the marshal not discover who the leaker was, but the investigation was prejudged. And ultimately weakened from the very start and i think illegitimate from the very start because the judges themselves were held to a different standard than everyone else Mm -hmm. who was investigated Mm -hmm. which is to say as far as we know first of all within the report itself it did not disclose whether the judges were interviewed and subjected to the same interviews as every other potential suspect with the motive and means to get that opinion draft opinion and leak it
1: if interviewed and at so, all if interviewed uh, at all by the way yeah. and
2: yeah not interviewed at interviewed were their devices as the devices of other people were collected right taken and forensically examined and a whole slew of other questions around it the The report did not address whether the judges were interviewed and then so only subsequently under firestorm even from a leftist sources then the marshal came out with a statement saying well indeed I did speak with the justices Damn. but it seems clear based upon what the marshal disclosed and this is the marshal's words that the, there were no credible leads there and that the justices were not implicated nor were their spouses. On this basis I did not believe that it was necessary to ask the justices to sign sworn affidavits.
1: Right.
2: How when you're talking about the highest court in the land which grapples with cases just like these of adjudicating right from wrong, constitutional from unconstitutional, and the like, which requires going through deep investigation, how could you possibly, in something of this gravity, not hold the justices to the very same standard as everyone else? How could you show deference towards them? It's not an issue of not showing them the respect that they're owed, but for this to be credible, everyone with the motive and means has to be investigated. And, of course, the judges had motive, certain judges had motive and means, or could have directed yep. subordinates to do so or others to leak on their behalf. And obviously, it's a terrifying prospect to consider that a judge might be there. But we can, we can glean, based on the opinions, some of the more unhinged opinions from judges, that clearly they felt very strongly mm-hmm. about issues like mm-hmm. this and could have done so or directed someone else to do so. So I think that this report is an utter disgrace and failure, which really discredits the court And Justice Roberts, in his desire to defend the institution, has once again, I think, sullied it by not putting an authority like the FBI on this, notwithstanding all of our legitimate gripes that we might have with the FBI and questions about what kind of an investigation they would undertake.
1: Sure. We're talking to Benjamin Weingarten, his piece in Newsweek, A Supreme Disgrace at the High Court. We'll get to his um, his uh, his expertise on Ilan Omar in a few moments. Let's stick with this for a few moments. Benjamin, this seems to me like it wouldn't have been the hardest investigation to conduct. The Supreme Court doesn't have that many employees in Toto in the first place. And if you separate the justices for the moment and just talk about the law clerks uh, who, who clearly the marshal's office would have been interviewing and would have been interviewing under penalty – Uh, Then we have something perhaps even worse at play here. What we have are clerks of these Supreme Court justices who were able to lie directly to the face of investigators and get away with it. And what I wanted to remind my audience about is these clerks are the elite of the elite of the legal profession. They will go on not only to, of course, uh, what we would phrase white shoe law firms, but they will probably in their career go on to be judges, if not justices themselves. These are very rarefied plum jobs from the very most rarefied of plum uh, CVs, if you will, or CSV, I guess. And and, and the idea that they can lie brazenly to an investigation about having committed what looks like uh, maybe the greatest uh, crime out of the Supreme Court in its history is quite Awful for the future of what we can expect from the legal profession, it seems to me.
2: It's it's an exceptional point, and I think that is among the demoralizing takeaways from this. Leave aside whether it's an incompetence, a staggering incompetence, which I don't think it necessarily is. Right. Or I think more likely an unwillingness. Right. To get to the bottom of who actually leaked here. Right. The notion... That we are now creating the best of the best in a field like the law, where it's clear because it's happened now that there are individuals who could rise to a level of a clerk or worse, the Supreme Court justice, and that they would engage in as brazen an act than this one. Which, by the way, almost led to the assassination. That's of a Supreme correct.
1: Court That's right. There was an assassination attempt on a Supreme Court justice uh, over this very thing. An assassination attempt, I should say, as far as I know, you may know differently, correct me if I'm wrong, that has never once been mentioned by the president or the vice president of the United States.
2: I think that may well be right. And we know that law enforcement as well did not go out and arrest people who were illegally protesting outside the houses of Supreme court justices as well. So at its highest level, this was about mob rule and an individual taking it into his or her hands to believe that they ought to try to sway a court under the pressure of the mob Mm -hmm. and that someone could rise to this level with that lack of character is incredibly disturbing, it's it's damning, and frankly, it's an indictment of all of the elite institutions from which these clerks and the judges themselves came.
1: I'll also say this. It's odd to me that the marshal's office or even the, what would you call him, overseeing special master, the former head of Homeland Security, would be okay with this. That they're okay with, <laughs> they just disseminated it or promulgated it, and thinking, okay, well, you know, we took a look, can't find anything, let's move on. I mean, the 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 casualness and the blitheness over this is equally stunning. We can just now leak opinions and subject them to mob rule, and subject justices who we don't agree with to assassination attempts based on these leaks, and we're just gonna you know, wash our hands of it and walk away as if nothing strange is going on here. There's the music. Let me take a quick break here, uh, Ben. We'll pick up on any last thoughts you had on it and then talk about the uh, removal of Ilan Omar from the House Foreign Relations Committee. I'm Seth Liebson. He is Benjamin Weingarten, among other things, the author of American Ingrate, Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. Benjamin Weingarten is our guest, deputy editor of Real Real Clear Investigations, uh, contributor to the Newsweek and their opinion page edited by the uh, great Josh Hammer, who uh, we were with yesterday, actually. Uh, Ben, any other thoughts on the the piece you had this week at Newsweek on the supreme disgrace at the high court? Feel free. Otherwise, uh, I'll take us into the uh, Ilhan Omar situation.
2: My parting shot on the court is that no American should find it acceptable that, to your point, the marshal, as well as the former DHS secretary, find this to be acceptable. And their excuses were just beyond laughable from my perspective. It didn't have the technical capabilities. And, you know, as a consequence of the pandemic, there really weren't measures in place. Uh, It's simply intolerable. Although, again, you shouldn't need to have these measures in place because these institutions, should be staffed by people of the highest character and fidelity to the law the constitution and the american people and beyond that the the last tangential point i'll make is it's also laughable that the dhs secretary that was selected to oversee this process and rubber stamp it was the one who was selected because he actually is one of the individuals went out there and said that Hunter Biden's laptop, or intimated, that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation. Oh, was he
1: one of the 50-plus intelligence officials? I I missed that. Okay. Yeah. He was
2: not one of the 51, but he did go on record as saying, essentially, it had all the hallmarks. Yeah. This was a Russian plot.
1: OK. So so he knows nothing. And uh, what he does know, he gaslights uh, the American people with based on his previous position for a political purpose. That's 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 who's governing the governors right now.
2: The diplomatic way of putting
1: it. OK. Yeah. All, right. All right. Well, it's hard to get diplomatic about our next topic because this is someone who speaks with forked tongue at best. But we're talking about um, Ilan Omar, the subject of a The most important and the landmark book you wrote, bravely wrote about her, American ingrate Ilhan Omar and the progressive Islamist takeover of the Democratic Party. There's actually an awful lot to say about what transpired yesterday. Um, I'll let you take it any direction you want, Ben, and then we can dig into it. But I thought maybe just to start, the most interesting thing I saw, I watched all the speeches on the House floor with regard to her removal from House Foreign Relations, and the one thing I took away that I think is really most interesting is every Democratic Party member uh, voted to keep her on the committee, but in all of their speeches, not a one of them, not a single one, not Eric Swalwell, not Rashida Tlaib, not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, not a single one of them actually responded to the indictment against her, which was her anti-American Slurs, which were her anti-Semitic slurs, which were her anti-ally and pro-socialist slurs. Not a one of them. They all went to other issues. Not a one of them responded to the actual indictment against her. Almost as if they either agreed with it or just couldn't respond to it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that what it, what it illustrates is that on the merits, Ilhan Omar's positions, her rhetoric, is indefensible, but from their vantage point if you dare criticize her you are more guilty than she is
1: mm-hmm. and
2: that was the tact that she took that her supporters in the squad took and that frankly she's taken from the beginning yep. in terms of her career on the national stage and even at the more local level uh, in her home state or i guess second home state of minnesota she has always claimed that if you dare to ask any kind of probing question to confront her, to challenge her on any of a million contentious issues where she's taken radical positions, basic questions about her background, her conduct and the like, she will immediately attack and claim that you are a bigot. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that disqualifies you from even being able to raise any of these points. This is one of the reasons why when I wrote my book, even though I knew that one would get a tax for writing any book mm-hmm. that wasn't awning when it comes to Ilhan Omar, that everything is meticulously cited. There are over a thousand references in that book. It was painfully put together and meticulously crafted. and And consequently, Omar herself put out a fundraising appeal several days after it came out, back in February 2020, where she said something to the effect of, an Islamophobic, bigoted writer is now out trying to attack Ilhan Omar and right. trying to raise money off of that. Right. Essentially with the same kind of rhetoric that she reflected uh, in context of this removal from her assignment on the House Foreign Affairs Committee position. The same kind of rhetoric that was leveled by the likes of AOC and others in the Democrat Party. So they cannot defend the rhetoric. Uh, it's, it's a good thing, a very positive thing that the resolution actually laid out, chapter and verse, some of that rhetoric. Because let's not forget, Democrats themselves closed ranks around her Mm -hmm. four years ago Mm -hmm. when there was supposed to be a resolution censuring her for Mm -hmm. just the kind of rhetoric laid out. And what happened? Progressives intervened. I believe it was the Congressional Black Caucus literally came out and formed a circle around Ilhan Omar mm-hmm. defending her mm-hmm. as they called for the resolution to be watered down. And ultimately, a resolution was put forth that did not name Ilhan Omar directly, nor point out her specific rhetoric verbatim. Instead, a, resol- a mealy mouth, watered-down resolution came out that condemned anti-Semitic bigotry Islamophobic bigotry and then any anti-minority bigotry. (laughs) So it wrote her out of the resolution. So Republicans rectified a great wrong that was done there. Uh, But a point that I would make and a point that I will make in a coming piece in Newsweek that will be out next week is that the resolution could have gone a lot farther in justifying stripping her from that. Uh, I agree. I Pretty thought, yes,
1: I keep going. That's a great point. I thought it. I, I thought the resolution itself was was uh, was uh, was cabined. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So the resolution you know, talks about the anti-American rhetoric, the Jew hatred, the anti-Zionism. And then, you know, because she's a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, that's a body that speaks for Congress on matters of national security and foreign affairs. And so essentially, she's disqualified herself from that position. She can't objectively look at the foreign policy. And and I would argue she takes the foreign policy position of our worst adversary on a whole slew of issues. Yeah. But beyond that, she should have never been on the House Foreign Affairs Committee in the first place. And I'd go even further to say she posed a threat to U.S. national security Mm -hmm. by being in that position precisely because the type of material, the sensitive materials that she would have had to grapple with on a daily basis, given that the House Foreign Affairs Committee deals with the most vital issues of U.S. national security and foreign policy, indicates she should have have never been on that committee, and she could have posed a threat with that information in her hands for two primary reasons. One, as I lay out in a full chapter in my book, her ties to Islamist individuals and entities, foreign and domestic, a whole raft of ties. Including pecuniary ones, yep. compromise her, as do the uh, credible allegations of a whole slew of aspects of fraud, including tax, marriage, immigration, student loan, and beyond, plus her perjury around those yes. frauds, all totally compromise her. And if you look at a basic background check form in SF 86 for a federal national security position, she would fail on every single count. So she was totally compromised going in and should have never been seated on that committee in the first place. Democrats recklessly endangered U.S. national security by putting her
1: to that. Yeah, in the name of this progressive Islamist thing, this trans, uh, trans, uh, trans, uh, what, what, what intersectional, I guess is the word I want, this intersectional veto they want to put on anyone who might disagree with that progressive outlook. Let me take the quick commercial break and come back on that very point, if I might. Our guest is Benjamin Weingarten, author of American Ingrate, Ilan Omar, and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. Our guest is Benjamin Weingarten. He is the deputy editor of Real Clear Investigations, a contributor at Newsweek, and the author of American Ingrate, Ilan Omar, and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party did, as you say, among other things, close complete ranks around her yesterday. She makes a uh, perfection of uh, denouncing anyone who criticizes her on the merits of what she actually says and does as being a bigot or a racist, someone who doesn't want, as she put it yesterday, a woman of color talking about the foreign policy of the United States. I'm guessing she didn't have that point to make about Condi Rice or Nikki Haley. But uh, consistency is never been her strong suit. It's just getting through the political crisis of the moment, a crisis that she always brings on upon herself. Benjamin, she has had primary races um, in the Democratic Party in Minnesota waged against her uh, in almost every election, and the Democratic Party and the Speaker of the House and the they don't remain neutral on these things. They endorse her and support her. This is a Democratic Party problem. It's not just an Ilan Omar problem.
2: Absolutely right. The one of the arguments that I make in the book, and I think it's only strengthened over time in the subsequent years, is that Omar at the time was not only the future but fast becoming the present right. of that party. Yep. And you can you can measure this in any number of ways you know you look at the size of the congressional progressive caucus you look at them closing ranks for a figure like omar but maybe the best illustration is look at joe biden if you took joe biden's career uh, to the extent he's even there as president sure, today sure and you line up the positions that he took as a bellwether of kind of the democrat establishment he has overseen arguably the most radically leftist administration in American history. Mm -hmm. Far more radical, arguably, than Barack Obama's, even if it hasn't been as transformative. I think that tells you all you need to know about the power of leftism and leftist elements in the Democratic Party. Again, when Nancy Pelosi herself allowed that prior resolution to be watered down, I think that illustrated it in stark detail. Mm -hmm. The fact that you didn't have anyone... In the Democrat Party yesterday, who voted for the resolution, even though some of them said they agreed, yep. that they support her comments and, and that she should be stripped and the like, and you know their arguments about tit for tat issues about stripping committee assignments and the like. But all of it illustrates that she is not only tolerated by the Democrat Party, but in many quarters a beloved figure there. Right. The fact that they didn't primary her the last race tells you all you need to know. And I have to say, when I went to visit her district, I spoke with the person who she had unseated as a state legislator, which is kind of a remarkable little vignette in and of itself that I detail in the book. And what she told me was essentially Ilhan Omar is unbeatable, except maybe if someone like an Al Franken were to try to run for a seat and ouster.
1: OK, so it would take an overwhelming name and force, basically. Correct. The um – The indictment against her, I uh, sometimes fear, has been seen so much as merely uh, an indictment against her anti-Semitism. Beyond the anti-Semitism, it's also anti-Americanism. I mean, anti-Semitism should be seen as anti-Americanism, but it is also her anti-Americanism that I think should be first and foremost in people's minds when you have someone on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. This is someone who has uh, blamed America On and uh, overstated by factors of 100 uh, the number of deaths we were responsible for in Somalia, as, by the way, if we were responsible for those deaths in the first place. Someone who has blamed America for the problems in Venezuela as opposed to the Marxist governments of Venezuela. This is someone who has compared the United States to the Taliban. This is someone who I learned only this morning— uh, would not lift a finger, not a finger uh, or fingernail on behalf of the women facing suppression in uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, as uh, Masih al has documented her attempt to get um, uh, Ilan Omar's help on that front any number of times. She wouldn't lift a finger on it. She is not only an apologist for some of our worst enemies, she not only compares us to some of our worst enemies, she denounces us, at every turn, and yet wants to speak on behalf of our foreign policy from a position of power. Let me let you unload on what I just unloaded on on the other side of that break. That was a mouthful, and we had that was a quick segment. I'll let you um, I'll let you respond to any or all of that when we come back. Benjamin Weingarten is our guest. His book, very important book, American Ingrate: Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. How do you have an anti-American? On the House Foreign Relations Committee in the American House of Representatives. We'll be right back. Benjamin Weinarton is our guest. He's the author of American Ingrate Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. His last name, by the way, is spelled W E I N G A R T E N, if you want to look him up. So, Benjamin, it's really. The issue of someone who is in and out, up and down, anti-American, who wages uh, racial pyrotechnics, if you dare condemn or criticize her, as almost a peremptory or heckler's veto to shield her for her anti-Americanism. All of it is without merit, but none of it is meritorious of sitting on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. That was my larger or long-winded point in the last segment.
2: And you made it well. And. her remarks and then the policy positions that she's taken are incredibly damning. And on one level, she actually is kind of the perfect representative of the Democratic Party to sit in that seat. Uh, But that doesn't mean I want her sitting there as a symbol or a representative of it because of the disaster that it does to U.S. national interest. And you mentioned blame America first. And one of the things I thought about as I, I was crafting my book was, Jean Kirkpatrick, her describing the Blame America First crowd. And this is just kind of the next generation version of it. But she is a uniquely odious figure. And, you know, there are all manner of Democrats who hold who take similar policy positions, although she's kind of unique in some ways. Like, for example, when it comes to condemning Turkey for the Armenian genocide, I think she might have been one of two members of the House who refused to condemn. And that's in no small part because, as I lay out in the book, she has extensive ties to the Turkish government, up to and including Erdogan, who she met as a mere state legislator on the sideline of the UNGA, Uh, that's worth noting. So that that points to the broader point, which is, it's not just the positions that she takes, which are disastrous for U.S. national interest. It's not just the Jew hatred, the Israel hatred, and the America hatred, which, again, many of her colleagues have also expressed at varying levels. But it's the the compromise as well on top of it. It's the applying the Robert Mueller collusion standard, which is what set off the, the concept of writing this book in the first place, of links and or coordination with Islamist individuals and entities and governments, foreign and domestic, that is compromising. And it's a raft of documented relationships that I lay out in this book. And then beyond that, of course, the personal apparent criminality or minimum ethics violations when you put it all together it's a uniquely dangerous figure to put in the position of sitting on the house foreign affairs committee and that democrats did essentially as a chit to the progressives, as something to throw to the progressives i think tells you all you need to know about how seriously they take u.s national security and foreign policy and again I would go back to the other side of the coin when you look at her rhetoric and the positions that she's taken and her affiliation. If you were a foreign adversary, would you act any differently or put up anyone different than the Democrats did in the form of Ilhan Omar? And and I would suggest no, they could not ask for anyone better than her to be in that seat.
1: She's worked this to a fairly well in the sense that she's put the Democratic Party either in a position – they want to be in, although I suspect a lot of Democrats don't want to be in, but a position they probably will now have to be in, which is to elevate her now further. That's my guess. Um, uh, Hakeem Jeffries said she could serve on other committees, perhaps budget or something like this. My guess is she has put the party in a position where they now have no choice, whether it's volitional or, uh, or not, to actually make her, um, as she promised, voice louder. That's my guess.
2: I think you're right. In a perverse way, this yeah. is actually going to elevate her, and she will be treated as some kind of martyr. Right. Obviously, you saw the AOC clips going yeah. around, yeah. The laughably hysterical clips, and she's going to probably use those as campaign commercials, and so that's going to remind people of Vila and Omar every single time they see it. Yep. So it's probably going to be, to your point, a huge headache to the less radically leftist yeah. cohort yeah. within the Democrat Party. and. Uh, That's a richly deserved punishment for having elevated her in the first place.
1: I agree with that. I was struck by the AOC talk on the floor speech on behalf of her yesterday on the floor, not for the histrionics of it, but for her um, use of or her um, weaponization of the notion of anti-Islamic bigotry in this country after 9-11. Oddly enough, again, ignoring the indictment against Ilan Omar, I've been reminding the audience repeatedly, any given year before, the year of 9-11 or after, you will see far more anti-Semitic hate crimes in this country than anti-Islamist hate crimes, far more, by factors of like over 300 percent. And it's odd to me that someone like AOC would be able to get away with washing that entire indictment away against the real hate or the bigger part of the hate while uh, trying to defend and raise and elevate the minor part of the hate. Um, Again, ignoring all of the indictment that was used against her. It's just, perhaps one might say, a cause for or fuel for even more anti-Semitism, Benjamin.
2: It's absolutely right. The narrative itself is a form of dissembling because Democrats cannot and won't grapple with the implications of the reality. Uh, I would say AOC knows better, but I'm not sure that I don't know
1: if she does. She may never have actually looked at those stats. She may not have.
2: And 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 I'm uh, I'm struck by one thing that I keep returning to in my own mind about this is you you mentioned 9-11 and that conjures up for me, Omar talking about if some people did something, those remarks that she gave were delivered uh, in front of a CARE group. Mm -hmm. And CARE, as you know, and I'm sure as your listeners know, is an unindicted co-conspirator in the largest domestic terrorism financing case in the history of the country. And itself, the Holy Land Foundation that it's linked to, uh, there were there were monies that CARE sought to raise after nine eleven that I believe actually went to the yep. Holy Land Foundation. Yep. So
1: yep. exactly uh, right. the
2: links are just staggering. It's it's beyond demoralizing and disgusting. It's dangerous that someone like this is elevated and that she's been so embraced by the Democratic Party it speaks volumes about its nature.
1: All courage and credit to you for writing this book and staying on this case, Benjamin Weingarten. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate your generosity. Uh, of time in uh, spending it with uh, some of this uh, audience, sir. Thank you very much for all you do and all you are. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you it. You bet it. Benjamin Weingarten, again, the book, American In Great, Omar, and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. You've heard me talk about Y-Refi for a while now. If you still have questions about how well they can do for your investments, they want you to give them a call so they can put you in touch with other customers in the Phoenix area who have done really well with them. Their number is 888-Y-Refi34, and they're happy to put you in touch, as I say, with the many satisfied customers who have been getting great rewards and interest rate returns by investing with them. Think about your IRA as well, and if you'd like it to be earning a strong fixed interest rate and not be dependent on the stock market. Talk to YRefi about that. You can invest with them through an IRA or other qualified funds and keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn. Tax deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Invest Yrefi Com. Do we have time for a little, Jim Kirkpatrick? Maybe just a little. Maybe a little flavor of what Ben Weingart and I were talking about from 1984. Here is the old ambassador.
2: They said saving Grenada from terror and totalitarianism was the wrong thing to do. They didn't blame Cuba or the communists for threatening American students and murdering Grenadians. They blamed the United States instead. But then... Somehow, they always blame America first. When our Marines sent to Lebanon on a multinational peacekeeping mission with the consent of the United States Congress were murdered in their sleep, the Blame America First crowd didn't blame the terrorists who murdered the Marines. They blamed the United States. But then they always blame America first. That's
1: uh, she goes on and on. And we edited out the uh, huge standing applause lines between those refrains just so we could get some of what Jean Kirkpatrick said there. Um, Jean Kirkpatrick said that at the Republican convention in 1984 as a Democrat. And she mentioned up front that she was a Democrat. How I wish for that Democratic Party once again. How I wish. But I think the stake was driven into the heart of that Democratic Party Many years ago, how sad and how unfortunate, because blaming America first has become the mantra of the Democratic Party and ignoring all the sins that are committed by the members of the Democratic Party in the service of blaming America first has become their first feature. It's a lousy place to be. It's an awful place to be. I love that you think this is a good place to be with this show. And thank you all for spending some of your week, some of your time with us. And um, what can I say? Really means a great ton to us. We take none of you or that for granted. Until Monday, I am Seth Leapson. God bless you all. Have a great weekend. And until then, class is dismissed